sits at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Thanks, bro. And, you know, we've been working through this series, through the, um, this chapter. In the, I mean, we, one day I would love to do a series through Romans itself because it's just fantastic. It's a chock full. The way we go through the scriptures would probably take us about five years. So we just decided to take one chapter, Romans chapter 8. And, and hopefully you've been grasping why we've titled this series uh, Riches. D- that just this amazing exploration of the depths. Of, can we adjust the sound a little bit here? Um, I don't know if you, Jason, or someone can go back there as well and check it out. Um, this, this amazing exploration of the depths of God's great love. That, that um, you know, through the saving work of Jesus, that God has revealed himself in, in such an amazing, deep, rich way. And this idea, this, this idea that we see throughout that our good works, the be- I mean, you can be like the sharpest person in here and the most obedient, the more, most moral, but even our best works are never the basis of our acceptance by God whether from the beginning of our relationship with him all the way through till the end, that that it's until this point where we follow Jesus into glory, it's always about what God has done through Jesus Christ. And I hope that these themes have started to hit home for you. If you've been here listening, I hope these riches, you've been sitting in it, and like I talk about like a spiritual crock pot, you've been sitting there letting it stew over you and and just uh, immerse yourself in it. But I'm also going to venture to guess that for some of us here, maybe many of us, You've been experiencing something along with this deeper awareness of God. Um, that as much as you've been experiencing the wealth of God's love, perhaps you've also been hearing voices saying things like, yo, are you sure this is talking about you? <laughs> um, I mean, I mean if, this, if this is real, shouldn't you be getting any better? <laughs> I mean, you are such a hypocrite. You are such a phony. Oh, holy moly acting and thumping your Bible and raising hands and acting all spiritual. But well, you know who you are. You sure this is talking about you? Because I want to I encourage you that if you have, if, you've, if you hear messages like that, you're probably experiencing nothing different than any other believer in Jesus Christ does, that you're hearing the very accusations of Satan himself. And, and if you're new here and maybe your friend brought you and at this point you're like, yo, this pastor is talking like the devil's real. You didn't tell me this is that kind of church. Uh, yeah, I mean, we believe the scriptures that God is real. We also believe that Satan, the, the enemy, he is also real. But I think sometimes the problem is we have these caricatures of, of things like Satan and spiritual warfare, almost like there's God on one shoulder and this little like guy with red uh, boots and like pointy ears and like a pitchfork. And like when your toast burns, it's like, yeah, the enemy's out to get you or your flat tire. And oh, yeah, Satan. And we have this weird kind of idea of, of, of Satan. And all that might be true. But what I want us to focus on in the nature of Satan, one of his very clear attributes is that he's an accuser. He's known as an accuser. And, and one of Satan's most effective weapons is to point out yours and my hypocrisy as we live this life. Point out the ways that we fail, that we hear the word of God and we actually take it to heart and we try to live it, but that we utterly fail and we feel like a spiritual moron and we just never seem to get it. That as you and I take to heart this gospel, Satan, what he understands is he cannot pull God's elect away from God. And we're going to look at that more next week. That if God has got you, nothing's taken you away. Nothing will separate you from his love. But what what he can do is hurl accusation after accusation at you. 
He knows he can't pull you, pull you away from God, but he can hurl accusations. Um, he can throw charge after charge at Christians so that you would stop trusting God, that you would stop living under this truth, that you are justified, and that's just a fancy word. You're, you're called righteous based on the work of Jesus alone. And Satan wants to throw, like, like lobbing grenades at you, accusations and charges, saying, y'all, this doesn't apply to you. And we see these accusations in today's passage, verse 33, when it says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? And this, as you're reading this, this is almost meant to create the picture of a courtroom. This is almost like you're seeing a court. And, and some of us, we have too much familiarity with a courtroom, whether good or bad. Um, but some of you know what I'm talking about. You're in a courtroom, and, and that the Christian is on trial. And the prosecuting attorney is Satan. And he's bringing this litany of charges against you. And I kind of picture Satan as like Saul Goodman. And if you have no idea who that is, then it's okay. Don't Google it. But I picture Satan looking like that, like the prosecuting attorney. Um, And he's bringing charges like, um, God can't be for you. I mean, I I know we've looked in the scripture that God is for you, but God can't be for you. Because, I mean, how can you believe God is on your side when that's going on in your life right now? Are Are you serious? You can't believe God's on your side when you've got these things happening to your body. And your finances and your family and your, your future and your home and, and your 401k. You can't believe God's on your side. Or charges like, wow, look at your sins. Oh, my goodness. I mean, I've known some sinners, but you are like, off the, you, you are a great sinner. You call yourself a Christian? I mean, there's no possible way you can defend yourself what you do. How can you go to church every week and then live the way you do, think the way you do? That's ridiculous. You can't, you can't possibly defend that. Or maybe the charges are like, man, you talk about all this forgiveness. You talk about how Jesus' blood forgives you. But, man, you have far exceeded the depth of even God's forgiveness. I mean, God's great and all, but there's no way he can be as patient to forgive you with what you're doing. How are you going to defend yourself at God's final judgment? And, and Satan... He's like this clever prosecutor. He's trying to discredit us like a good prosecutor would. Um, Or maybe he's trying to discredit the character of God. Like when bad things happen then, he's he's, uh, suggesting, wow, it must mean God is against you. Um, Why would a good God let this stuff happen to you? It's got to be God. God God can't be fully trusted. Or maybe he attacks your meager um, attempts at growing in faith. Maybe Satan just accuses your meager discipleship. And that you're, despite your best efforts, despite how much energy you put into it, that you just keep on failing over and over again and just mocks you. Or maybe he puts into question, as he prosecutes, your status as adopted children. And we looked at that earlier in Romans 8, right? This idea that God is not just this far-off father, but he's daddy, he's Abba. He calls us his own when we are in him. That he looks at us, he calls us precious little boys and girls. Um, but maybe insinuating that our failures, our failures have caused God to give that up now. Yeah, God looked at us. And we were like poor little orphans. He took us in. But man, now he got to know us. <laughs> he took us in. But oh, wow. I didn't know you were that kind of kid. And, and ultimately, we, we still live in this way that we think, yeah, God may have adopted me, but I need to keep up a certain level of goodness, certain level of productivity, or, or he's going to send me back. And we still believe this in our minds. And like any good prosecuting attorney would, um, what Satan does, he's, he just brings before the judge, brings before the jury, and he, what he does is he tries to cast this big picture and say, take a good, long, hard look at the evidence here. 
Because in the case of the Christian, the evidence that this prosecuting attorney, this accuser Satan would bring out is just our mountain of failed efforts. He say, Judge, you need proof that, that, that this person now we're saying, look at this, look at this mountain of all the ways they failed. Look at all the ways that they've said they're going to be holy and live a certain life and be pure and be generous. And God. But look at them. The, the, the evidence is not in their favor. Look at how they've lived their life. Look at all the ways that they've backslid into sinful, selfish attitudes. Look at how much they've committed in different ways and they just failed, you and people. And the accuser, maybe he leaves the courtroom with just this very basic thought. If you are really a Christian like you keep talking about, shouldn't you be any different than you are actually right now? And the thing is, um, our accuser, he doesn't have to really work too hard at this. He doesn't have to work too hard for this argument, or he doesn't even have to lie because the truth is, I mean, you and I know he's right. (laughs) I mean, you and I know he's right. Uh, We have failed. Sometimes on a very regular basis, we have failed. So verse 34, when it asks, who is to condemn, it seems like a very valid response would be, Satan does. Who's going to condemn? Well, Satan. He, he has all his evidence. But the answer we need to have for those who are in Christ, it, it takes us back to the very beginning of chapter 8 and verse 1 of this chapter when we read, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So when verse 33 asks, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? The response is, it is God who justifies. That the prosecuting attorney, Saul Goodman, he might be very clever. And he has a really strong argument. And he's got a mountain of evidence that seems insurmountable in our failure and our sin. But we have this amazing defense attorney on our side. Jesus Christ himself. Amen. That, that's our defense attorney. And some of you, you've had really bad defense attorneys. So imagine Jesus is your defense attorney. And, and before basically decided, I found it fascinating. I didn't do too well in it, but I found it fascinating that you had this main argument. And then you have these prongs, usually three prongs that support this main argument. And in the same way, that's what we have here in Jesus' response to these accusations. That there's this main argument. It is, G, it is G, God who justifies. Jesus is the justifier. And he, there's four statements that defend that. And this is his defense of us, pretty much. If he's coming before the judge, these are the statements he makes as we stand before the judge. One, and you see it right there, right? Jesus died. Verse 34, Jesus died. That when the Christian, if you're a Christian, and when you stand face to face with the accusations of your failure, when you are faced with the true uh, nature of your sin, the appropriate response is, oh, man, I'll just try to be a better Christian next week. Man, well, forget last week. You know, right? It's in the past. I'll I'll be better this week. Or, you know, yeah, I failed, but wait till you see me, man. This is the year of me. I'm, I'm going to get it this year. And we do that New Year's resolution every year, right? Same year. This year is going to be different and never is. Or, you know, I, man, I'm really going to buckle down. I'm really going to study my Bible harder this year. I'm really going to get serious about prayer. I'm not going to watch Netflix while I pray anymore. I'm going to get really serious. <laughs> or excuses like, man, but ugh, come on, cut me some slack. You don't know how stressed I am this week. You don't know how tight it's been this week. You don't know how bad it's been. Come on, no one's perfect, right? I just just had a bad week because, man, my family's killing me. Work's killing me. School's killing me. I I need a release. And we make excuses. 
But guys, instead of all these excuses, when you, if you are a Christian, when you're confronted with your sin, you can say, you actually don't know the half of it. You actually don't know the full extent of my sin. I'm much worse than you know. Because you're just looking with eyes of flesh. You don't know what's even going on in my heart. But Christ has died for my sin. Amen? That's, that's, that's what we say when he died. He died for our sin. That on the cross, Jesus paid the price for all of the sin of God's elect. Even the sins that Satan might be accusing of us right now. That Jesus, he bore God's wrath and the Father is fully satisfied. That, that my sin can never be brought against me as a charge any longer. It's like double, je- double jeopardy. That the, the sins cannot be punished again. It can't be punished now or tomorrow and a week from now, a year from now. We can't be punished for our sins again because they, that would be double jeopardy because Jesus has already paid the price for those sins. He died. So Jesus' first argument, our defense attorney, great defense attorney, right? One, Jesus died. Second um, prong of his argument, Jesus rose again. We see in verse 34, Jesus rose again. And, and what we see in the resurrection, a few days after Jesus died, when he rose from the grave, if we had just stayed that Jesus died, I mean, that's noble, that's sacrificial, but that's like just a martyr's death. But the resurrection, that's why we always need to talk about the resurrection as well, because the resurrection is saying that Jesus was vindicated. That it wasn't just someone who sacrificially took our place, but he was fully righteous. And the resurrection is the Father saying, Jesus, what you did accomplished on the cross worked. It worked. You did it. And the resurrection, it's it's hearing the voice of the Father saying again, well done, good and faithful servant. Jesus, you did what you set out to do. And the resurrection is vindication. So we have Jesus died. Jesus rose again. And, And the third argument here is Jesus sits at God's right hand. And, and what it means is that Jesus, where, where he is right now, after he rose from grave and went, ascended into heaven, the scriptures say that he now sits at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And this is meant to be like a royal picture. If you've ever watched movies like Star Wars or any of these other sci-fi, at the end when they win, usually you have this image of like the ceremony and the coronation, and they're all sitting on thrones, right? That's what this is saying. They're saying the victory's been won. Jesus won, and now he gets to sit because he's done. He's done his work. He gets to rest because he's defeated death, hell, and Satan. And and that's why, guys, when he cried out on the cross, it is finished. Jesus, don't stutter. He meant it is finished. He's done. It's finished. I got this. I took care of it. My death took care of it on the cross. And and just for a second, I want us to look at Hebrews 10 because I think it gives us a picture of what we're talking about here. If you have it, you can turn there. But what it reads, Hebrews 10, verse 11, and it's talking about this idea of sacrifice for the priests in the Old Testament. It said in verse 11, chapter 10 of Hebrews, and every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. 
For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Did you catch what it's saying there? It's saying that throughout the history of the people of Israel, they had the sacrificial system where these priests killed animal after animal and blood after blood was shed, trying to atone for sin, trying to take away sin. But they could never stop. It was daily, weekly, monthly, annually, over and over and over and over. And these priests never stopped. But Jesus, the great priest, at one time, gave his life on a cross as the perfect sacrifice. And what does it say when he did it? A single sacrifice for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God. It's saying all these fools that have been doing sacrifices all these years, they're tired. They can never stop. I did it once and I sat down now. I'm resting because it's done. So the fact that he sits at the right hand of God, at the Father, is significant. That the work is finished. So that's the third statement in this argument. And Jesus' fourth statement here is he intercedes for us. Jesus intercedes for us. And so what he's doing as he sits at the right hand of God, he's not done in terms of like, okay, now it's nap time. You know, I've done my work. Y'all take care of the rest. He's sitting here. He's still working. And it says that he intercedes for uh, his people. He's working on behalf of his people. I've been praying for us. And what that means is if you're his elect, if you're his beloved, he's praying for you right now. And for some of you, if you don't come from a Christian family or if you don't have it, know too many people are Christians, maybe you don't have a single person who prays for you on a regular basis. Can I encourage you that you've got at least one? I mean, you've got two. You've got the Holy Spirit. We heard about that earlier in the chapter. But you've also got Jesus praying for you, interceding for you. And, and, I, and this is not from the Bible, so give me a little liberty here. But I imagine what that looks like as he's interceding to the Father for us that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father and he's praying for you. He's saying, man, Father, she is just really doubting right now that you're real. Father, he is just going through a mess of circumstances in his life right now. He is tanking everything he's put his fingers on. She is just a total train wreck right now. And she's doubting that you could have done this good work. And, and he has heard your messages and he believed at one time. But right now he's re- ready to throw it all away. Father, I love them. Would you hold them? Would you draw them closer to you? Father, I care for them. I'm praying for them. Even if they don't know it right now that you love them, would you show your love in practical, tangible ways? Father, you don't, I, I love them so much, and I'm, I'm, I'm interceding for them. I'm, I'm eagerly desiring for them to come to know you more. And, and the picture is that we have the Son of God fighting for you in prayer right now. And for some of you, when you don't have the strength to pray for yourself, when some of you have even given up on prayer because you feel like you're talking to a wall, that you've got Jesus, King of kings, Lord of lords, on your behalf, fighting for you in prayer. And, you know, I'm, I'm not that smart, but one thing I know is when Jesus prays, he knows how to pray. <laughs> he is praying for you. So we've got this cosmic courtroom setting, and I imagine Satan, you know, Saul Goodman, this wily prosecuting attorney, and he, had, you know, he thought that the evidence of our lives would be enough. He was thinking, clear-cut case, I got this in the bag, chalk one up for me. I mean, Look at them. They're scrubs. I've got it. Um, But in his closing argument, he's heard all that Jesus said. Oh, man. No way. I thought, I mean, look at these people. Seriously, I thought I had them in the bag. But, But maybe in his closing argument, he just brings it really hard. 
It's like, okay, Jesus, you know, we get the whole cross thing. Okay, Jesus, cross, cross. Okay, we get it all. Um, your death was enough. You know, Christ, the Lord, all that. Uh, can we just get back to reality here? I mean, can we just get out of our theology books and just get back to the reality of these people of flesh and blood right here? Can we just look at their lives? And let's get out of this, like, a white tower, kind of ivory tower theology. Oh, yeah, Jesus' blood covers us all. And can we just get back to the reality of who we're looking at here? Um, do you really know the person you're defending here, Jesus? Do you, do you know this guy that you're saying you're defending? Do you know this young lady here? Do you know this guy that's just embroiled in a pornography habit that everyone, everyone thinks he's some straight, laced, kind of pure guy? But do you know, like, the hours he spends just looking at porn and just degrading women? Do you, do you know him? Do you know her who is just, like, a malicious gossip and, and clo- cloaks it as, like, prayer sharing, but it's just a way to gossip about people? You know her? I'm saying, do you know this stuff? Do you, do you know him? That guy who takes his, his checks and just spends it all on stupid things, including drugs, over and over, and that keeps asking for help? You know him? You, you know her, this lazy one? This one that just mooches off everyone and is just lazy and never gets anything? You know her? I mean, you must not know her if you're saying you're defending her. I mean, you know what this guy, this, this self-righteous, arrogant, yeah, he looks straight-laced and Christian and all, but he is just so judgmental and arrogant, looks down on other people and wondering why don't they don't just work hard enough. You know him? You know her, the one whose heart has been wounded by abortion? You know her? The one that's trying to keep a secret from everyone? You, you know this one, the one that just mocks you by saying that they love you, but then they've never touched their Bible in years? That one, you know him? And just accusation after accusation. Basically, maybe we can boil Satan's accusations down to this. Knowing all this, who could ever possibly want her? Knowing all this, who would ever desire him? Who in their right mind would want folks like this? And Jesus, our great defender, I imagine him just walking over to the guilty putting his arm around him saying, I do. I do. And in the four ways we looked at, that he died. He rose again. He sits at the right hand of the Father. He intercedes for his elect. What Jesus is demonstrating is that he knows precisely the depth of our sin. He is not some uh, neophyte, kind of naive, just kind of stepping in. Oh, yeah, I'll take care of them. Ooh, I didn't know I was stepping into that. He knows fully who we are. And that's the reason why he went through a death and a resurrection and and interceding and all these different things, because he knows who we are. And he knows the cost that was required to make those who were once God's enemy his beloved and set them free. And man, I, there's something moving about this idea of those who've been set free. And uh, I was going to have someone come up here and sing it, but I'll just read a line from that famous um, musical, Les Miserables. And if you know the story, there's the story of Jean Valjean. Um, and he, you know, he had been incarcerated, and then he, he, he was out. But he was hungry, so he basically broke into this uh, monastery, and, and he stole these candlesticks. And he, he escaped again. And they caught him. The people looking, to, the guards caught him and they brought him back and they brought him before the bishop. And, and well, here's what he says. Monsignor, we have your silver. We caught this man red-handed. He had the nerve to say you gave him this. 
And the Monsignor replies, that is right. But my friend, you left. I'm not going to sing it. Don't worry about it. My friend, you left so early. <laughs> Surely something slipped your mind. You forgot I gave these also. Would you leave the best behind? And what he does, he actually goes, grabs even the best ones and brings them to Jean Valjean. So, Messieurs, release him. This man has spoken true. I commend you for your duty and God's blessing go with you. But as he speaks to Jean Valjean, the bishop, he says, but remember this, my brother, see in this some higher plan, you must use this precious silver to become an honest man. By the witness of the martyrs, by the passion and the blood, God has raised you out of darkness. I have bought your soul for God. And we see how the power of forgiveness and someone standing in his defense changes Jean Valjean, Jean Valjean, and he goes off to become a different man and is radically different. And there's something powerful when you know you've been set free, when you don't deserve it, when you know you totally deserve the wrath of, of your guilt and your shame, and you told that's, that you've earned that, but instead you've been set free and you've been forgiven. There's something powerful about that. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about because that's your story. But the thing is about as, as great as Les Miserables is, it's beautiful, but for the gospel message, it's actually missing a critical part because what should be another verse in this is the bishop says, yes, here's the candlesticks. Go and do wrong no more. Be a different man. But then the guards take the bishop and put shackles on his hand and say, we have to lead you away because someone needs to take the penalty for what this man has done. And the bishop says, I will. I will. I will take the curse of Jean Valjean upon myself. And he goes away to prison to take what Jean Valjean had earned. That's the true gospel message there. And for those who are guilty, it's not just that Jesus takes away your guilt and your shame, forgives you of your sin. It's that he did this at expense to himself. At his own sacrifice to his own body literally being torn apart, to the shame of the crowds mocking him and accusing him. He took that upon himself so that those who are found in him could be set free, could be able to stand against the accuser and to say, yes, I'm a sinner so much more than you're accusing me of, but I have a defender, I have an advocate, I have a hero who has fought for me. Look at the cross. Look at the grave he rose from. Look at the fact that he sits at the right hand of the Father interceding for me even right now when I don't deserve it. He fights for me. He loves me. I don't know why sometimes because I can't even love myself, but he loves me. Guys, that's the gospel. That's the beauty of the gospel. That's the beauty of the gospel that frees us from trying to just be a better person. And if you've been in church and the message you're left with is, oh, here's how you should be. Go try harder. No wonder you hate church. Because <laughs> no one can live under that kind of burden. <laughs> the gospel message is, here's what you should be doing. And you utterly fail. Praise God that you have a Savior who loves failures. Now, go be different. Go change because you know you're not trying to earn it, but he's bought it for you. Amen. Let's bow our heads together. I'm going to actually ask us to stand as our worship team comes up in a moment to lead us in some closing songs here as we respond. And we've been sitting for a little bit, so I'm going to ask you to stand. And then as you stand, if you want to sit back down again a little while and pray, that's fine. But maybe we can all start standing so that some of you who want to stand aren't going to feel weird when you do that.
But I'm going to ask you, just as you have your head bowed before uh, the Lord right now, and again, just in a room this size, I'm guessing.